going to be doing a rendition of Silent Night. Silent night, holy night, all is calm and all is bright, round yon virgin mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace Sleep in heavenly peace Silent night Holy night Shepherds quake At the sight Glory stream from Heaven afar Heavenly hosts sing Alleluia Christ the Savior is born Christ the Savior is born Silent night Holy night, Son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face, with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at the Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, we are the Cottage Street Band uh, with uh, piano, cello, and drums. Um, we picked out a couple songs to share. Uh, I selected these songs based on, uh, they're a little more on the contemplative side of Christmas. 
I think most people's uh, experience of Christmas is like somewhere in the gradient of like, you know, like pump it up, let's go Christmas to like uh, quietly like watching the snowfall. And I'm like slightly more on the contemplative side. So I also try to select songs that evoke a little bit of the wonder of Christmas. Um, so first for you, we have the Shepherd's Song by Josh Garrels. i 
Thank you. Uh, our next selection is What Child Is This? Um, normally our band of uh, three here is actually normally a band of four. So I'm slightly out of my element doing the vocals. Um, but while we were practicing this, our, uh, our singer was with us um, to listen to our, uh, what we had played. And she pointed out that it would, it's a little odd to sing a whole song about uh, Mary giving birth to Jesus and like the incredibleness of that. And then the title of the next song is What Child Is This? <laughs> Almost like, well, you, you should know, Mary. <laughs> but that is the title of the song.
song on high, the virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy, for Christ is born, the babe, the sign of Welcome to the Why God Why podcast. I am the co-host Peter Engler. We are brought to you by Browncroft Community Church and also Cody Schweikert and the Forefront Team Team Festival. Yeah, we are a festival. We are a festival. Anyways, we are beginning our newest episode and our greatest creation, which is a live recorded episode. We are responding to the question: Why do we still? Ha- why does Christmas still give us hope? Cody, where do you want to go? Peter, uh, first of all, it's good to be back with you here, this Why God Why table. We've shared many a proverbial meal at this table. Amen. And I am, uh, I'm glad to be with you, man. Uh, I, my mind goes to movies automatically. I think we did a Christmas-type episode a year ago, didn't we? Was that a year ago? Do you yeah, remember this? You literally are the bridge from Forefront to Why God Why. Hey, Amen. The Lord, I'm just an instrument. Okay, it's the <laughs> Lord. But uh, I think... Uh, Again, I, I think we talked about movies a lot. You shared your list, and I made fun of it because that's in my nature. I'm sorry, man. It was a good list, but um, if it's not exactly like my list, I think it's inferior, but that's not true. Um, but anyway, I was thinking about this, and I'm thinking about um, why does Christmas still give us hope? And I think about, I think I get nostalgia when I think about Christmas. Um, my favorite thing to do is, is to watch movies. I think I'm trying to recapture some of that magic of childhood. Um, for a child, especially Christmas, is like, I think I enjoyed it for different reasons. Uh, presents, mostly, right? Um, and I, I do find myself wishing I could recapture that magic sometimes. And so I'll watch movies like, uh, what, was, what was on your list, man? Do you want to run down real quick? I know... You well, don't we remember don't, the order, maybe. Well, we don't have time to go through all. I thought we could just do one. one What's go, our well, favorite? Well, my favorite is Home Alone. I'm gonna. I'm a Home Alone guy. Um, there's a lot you could choose from. Uh, there's Elf. There's all of those older, like claymation type uh, movies, like Rudolph and uh, the Little Drummer Boy. And my dad blew my mind, and he's like, "Yeah, these are like 50, 60, 70 years old." Some of these, and I was like, "Unbelievable!" But there's something special in that because. A movie like Home Alone, for instance, uh, I'm not bringing it up because like, I want to drop lines like, keep the change, you filthy animal. I wouldn't <laughs> say something like that on a Christmas show. But, uh, you might put micro-machines on the floor of your parents' house. Would I may or may not have done that. Okay, yes. just check it. Um, but I think there's something about uh, Christmas for me and, and watching those movies that uh, makes me nostalgic for the 1900s, which is when that movie came out. And uh, we look back, Christmas is a looking back to the past. Um, Christ came to be with us, and um, I'm reminded of the innocence of that, but there's also this disappointing thing that nostalgia has, I feel like, where you, what's that phrase about rose-colored glasses? We see the past through rose-colored glasses. Is that a real phrase? 
Yeah. Okay, we'll cut it out if we'll, we mess that up. I don't know. We'll go with it. All right, cool. But but there is like uh, you remember the you tend to remember some things in the past more fondly than they really were, and so I do feel like this bitter sweetness with Christmas. And I'm like, I'm always chasing this feeling. And I think that the, the way Christmas does give us hope is if we look back so that we can find hope in the future. Like Christmas gives us hope because we look back and we're nostalgic for maybe older Christmases, but maybe the first Christmas, like Christ coming as a child. Mm. But ultimately, I think we're supposed to look ahead because Christ came to be with us and his spirit's with us now, but he's not with us right now. And he is coming back. And I think that's where my mind goes, is to look to the future. And, and that is the hope. That is, that is our ultimate hope, is Christ coming back to be with us. Um, not as a baby, but as a grown man this time, you know? So I like it. Um, I, feel, I feel old. Like, and I, and I, mean that, <laughs> I mean that because like every year, I cry a little bit more at It's a Wonderful Life. It's a wonderful. Peter, I consider myself a movie buff, and I've never uh, seen this. I've never seen it. You've never last seen year, it. dude. Last year when we recorded this, and you call yourself I was like, a movie buff. <laughs> I am not. Yeah. I guess I'm sorry. You call yourself a movie buff, I'm and sorry. you've never seen the greatest Christmas Listen, movie ever. I apologize. Last year, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I haven't seen this. I'll watch it. It was a tough year. I didn't watch it, man. Um, I can you, understand. You look supremely disappointed in me. I, I'm not disappointed. You've I seen just, me say a, stu- a lot of stupid things in my life. Well, and, you've seen me say a lot of stupid things. That's but true. anyways, I. I, I guess I love the way you put it because Home Alone, fun fact, was actually the first movie I ever saw in theaters. You, no kidding. So um, Good one. you can guess how old I am. But anyways, uh, yeah, I, I think with this topic, I think the older we get, the more cynical we get. Mm. The older I get, the more I identify with George Bailey mm. of kind of feeling like, what in the world have I done with my life? Mm. And I think the question, why does Christmas still give give us hope. Like I watch my two daughters just get so excited about Christmas. Mm -hmm. You know, I watch Lucy who's 10 months old climb and try to just grab the tree and just grab the lights. And I see Haley, you know, asking about Jesus being born and what it's Mm -hmm. like. And in some ways that has given me new hope, not Mm -hmm. just because we're going to buy presents for them and they're going to tear their rope open and we're going to buy Lucy some expensive toy and she's going to play with the box. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I, I see that in this question, like I feel like we're all George Bailey's mm-hmm. and especially in the last two years yeah. of the coronavirus, the political unrest and, and the racial reckoning that we are all living this life feeling lost and wondering, do we have any hope? Is it worth it what I'm doing? And Mm -hmm. I think the reason Christmas still gives us hope is kind of what I think the theme of tonight is, is Christ is with us. With us, yeah. Christ is with us. That is, uh, and I won't, I'm going to read a story later on, um, and I I won't say too much about it then because I just got to read it. But uh, that is is what the story is called, is with. And a good friend that we both love, John Amile, was talking to me a few years ago when he was discipling me about uh, how with is kind of the most important idea in the Bible. Like obviously grace and like theology, you could pick a lot of words, but this idea of God being with his people has been something that has carried me through lots of storms in life. And um, that is, I mean, that is what Christmas is all about. So, You know, I've loved the music 
and there's something about hearing different bands play, but if there's a song that I've really just embraced this year, it's been Arrival by Hillsong, and I just want to read you these lyrics based on what you just said there. It said, God embraced our frame when when he graced the world he made. All hail the divine in a manger. Love embraced our fate when the playwright took the stage. All hail the arrival of our maker. Mm-hmm. And I think about tonight and I think about as you're listening to this podcast, whether you're you know, on the road, whether you have it there, like our hope is why do we still have hope this Christmas? Well, the creator of the universe entered creation. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a beautiful text message in that moment, but Amen. as you know, the, the playwright enters the stage yeah. and I think that no matter what you're going through, no matter how dark, how weary you feel, how frustrated you feel, is that tonight, wherever you are in your faith journey, the message of hope is still the same, that Jesus gave up the riches of heaven to come live among us. Mm-hmm. And, and God gave his one and only son. And if we if we see Jesus as a gift, which is the most cliche, cliche thing ever, like to th- talk about Jesus as a gift, but I, I pray like for the rest of the time here that we'd actually experience that like right now in this room, and if you're listening to this, that we would experience the goodness of that gift in a deep way. Mm. That'd be awesome. I think so too. Well, I have the joy and privilege to introduce our next segment. Can you all give it up for Cody right now? Mm. Mm. You. you will see him later. Um, so I want to introduce uh, a poetry reading from an author and uh, from Ryan Diaz, and we are so excited to have him. Can you give him a hand? How you doing? My name is Ryan Diaz. I am a poet and writer from Queens, New York, and I'm going to be reading from a few places. I released a book recently called For Those Wandering Along the Way, and the title poem is a poem about poetry and how it sustains us. And I think as we kind of turn the bend of fall and we enter into these winter months, there's a sense in which we begin to ponder as the days get darker and as we begin to wonder, you know, how do we get through the the proverbial darkness of our own lives? What are the things that sustain us? And this is a reflection on that for those wandering along the way. These are the songs we sing on the way through valley glades and desert moors across chaos waters to distant shores, in the dead of night with frosty chill, across sun-scorched earth and hardened clay, these are the songs we sing on the way. Taught to us by mothers old, glimmering bright with gilded gold, words woven from the ancient spells, knit together with psalms we pray, these are the songs we sing on the way. Mortal tales of eternal life, a chant of hope amid the strife, a beacon found on ancient fells in the twilight just before the day. These are the songs we sing on the way, sung aloud with notes of liberation, sounding like a prophet's declaration. All things new, all things well, winter always breaks for May. These are the songs we sing on the way, a candle burning mid the black guiding us with faded maps till we stumble through the door and find a bed on which to lay. These are the songs we sing on the way. Take up now these holy words. 
Hum with me the sacred dirge. Hold it deep within your soul for when you don't know what to say. These are the songs we sing on the way. This next poem is entitled The Poet's Mantra. Wendell Berry, um, the great American poet, wrote a poem entitled How to Be a Poet. And this is sort of a response to that poem as we ponder what it means to make and shape. And I think in a night where we have a lot of artists and creators here, this one is for you, for those who feel called to the making and the shaping, and who feel called to, as God did with his own word, give shape to the chaos of darkness. This one is for you. The poet's mantra. Do not go a day without creating, making, or shaping. Turning words into woven wonders and terrestrial terms into celestial lights. Never let the ink run dry. Let it flow. Till all the canvas is carved with ink and spirit and all the truth that has gone unsaid. Do not be silent. With the voice of your father speak and call forth the word who will give you the words when the ink is dry and your voice is quiet. Be still now. Let the words come. They will come. It may take time. Don't rush. Be still. Listen for the still, small voice, the whisper on the wind, and then when you hear it, say something true. This last one I'm reading from this collection, and then I'm actually excited to share with you guys a few um, pieces from my actually forthcoming collections, which will be probably coming out later next year. Um, but before we get there, this is um, a poem called The Radiator. I'm from New York City. I'm born and raised in New York City, born in Brooklyn, raised in Queens. And if you've never been to New York City, you've never been in a New York City apartment, um, we have very intense heat. Okay, many of us can't control the heat in our apartments. And so in the winter, it's very normal for it to be about 90 degrees in your apartment. And one day, while I was incredibly frustrated um, with the apparent heat wave that was happening in the dead of winter, um, this poem sort of came alive to me. The Radiator. All I could hear that morning was the squeal and pop of the radiator as it rumbled and roared out of its long slumber, letting off angry hisses as hot sea steam searched for a way to escape. It lumbered there in the corner, inanimate yet alive, a still dragon curled and waiting, a totem of fire and heat, Hephaestus's forge nestled between the sofa and bar cart. Curiously out of place in our New York apartment. This next one is um, actually part of a sequence of poems. Um, the great English poet John Donne wrote a fantastic po poem called La Corona. And it's a sequence of seven sonnets in which the last line of the preceding sonnet forms the fir first line of the next sonnet. And so this is actually a sequence of sonnets that I wrote called I Am, and this is actually, a, it's reflecting on the seven I Am statements of Jesus, and this is the last one when, when Jesus talks about being the vine. So I Am, part seven. From you flows life, the juice of the grape, the wine you give in place of your wrath. 
the vine in which all flowers find their make, fruit only produced on the narrow path. Abide in us and we will abide in you. Take us up in your arms and hold us tight. Give us your wine, the chalice of truth. Give us new eyes, the gift of your sight. Find good soil here in our souls. Spread your roots, dig in, draw us with you under the dirt. It's only in dying that we bear fruit. It's only in dying that we find birth. By your speech, we are released from decay. I am. With those two words, you showed us the way. And then this next one, um, I got about one more left after this. It's called On Speaking. You know, in this season, in Christmas, we are celebrating the incarnation, the idea that the cosmic logos, the eternal word of God has descended and taken on human form. And thus, what we then believe as, as Christians is that speaking is a participation in God's creative action that you know, philosophers talk about speech act theory. It's this theory that words don't simply describe the world around it, but actually give articulation to the world. That in speaking, we actually are participating in some sort of sub-creative action. And so speaking is not just us describing the world we see and observe, but it's actually participating in the creation mandate. It's participating in giving definition to the world, which is why for humanity, the first assignment given by God to Adam was the act of naming. And in naming, Adam is not simply just describing the, the animals he's seeing, but he's also somehow participating in giving them meaning and value in a new way, participating in the creative action of God in the world. So this is on speaking. Speaking is more than communication. In sounding syllables, we give intellection to meaningless sound, crafting consonants with croaks and groans, imbuing scattered sound with meaning. And from this jumbled mess emerges the impossible, the formless formed, airy nothingness given shape, the first creative act born again in mortal dress. And lastly, this is a poem entitled Nativitas, which is the Latin word for nativity. Um, Saint Cyril, who is a church father, and he was debating this man named Nestorius, and Nestorius was trying to deny the deity of Christ. And so one of the things that Saint Cyril wants to advocate for is the idea of Mary as the Theotokos, the, the God-bearer. And his, his argument is, is that if we can't say Mary bore God, that she is God's mother, then we actually deny the divinity of Christ. But in, as a consequence of defending that theory, we, we have these sort of picturesque versions of what it means for Mary to have borne Christ in her womb. And so the point of this poem is to, is to wrestle with the reality that, that God's dissension to us was a dissension that included getting involved in the muck, in the mire, in the pain of human existence, that he didn't bypass. This was no beautiful, beatific vision of birth. This was the full mess of human bearing, human birth, human giving of life. And it's only by doing that, as 
again, St. Cyril also said, he said, you know, God, God became what we are so we might become what he is. And so it's only in fully participating in the full act of human creation and, and being and being born that he's able to redeem us. And so in this re- poem is a reflection on Mary and what it must have been like to give birth and in that participate in redemption. Nativitas. No one ever talks about the pain her labored breathing, filling the stable, sweat and blood, making mud out of dirt. The pain is so intense she forgets her name. And knowing that tonight could be fatal, all she thinks about is surviving the birth. But this is the cost of redemption. Searing pain surging through a woman's navel as she's covered in animal refuse and earth. The all-too-human work of dissension, the timeless bound up in her belly's girth. Thank you. Ryan, it's great to have you. We're here with Rich from uh, Forefront. Ryan, as I listen to uh, all your poems, and by the way, I am going to be buying his book, and I hope (laughs) you all are too, whether you're here in person or find it online. So... Ryan, this one phrase, as I listened to you, just kept coming through my mind. Uh, it's always winter and never Christmas. Mm. Tell me what that means to you. Yeah, I mean, that's a, you know, a quote from the great C.S. Lewis. And there's a sense in which it's always winter, never Christmas describes the human condition. There's a sense in which, you know, the cold of winter is almost sort of bearable because we have this great kind of feasting in the middle. And to remove that is to remove a sense of joy or a sense of hope from um, those dark moments. And so in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in that first book, we see, we see a, a people that have been robbed of their expectation, of their hope, of their joy. And so for us, for it to be always winter and never Christmas, there is this sense in which human existence without the hope of the incarnation becomes a sense in which we're just abiding the cold without any sense that actually the cold is producing something and doing something more in us. It's actually Mm -hmm. preparing us for the arrival of spring. And so the Christmas season in some sense is an embodiment of what we are waiting for. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the proverbial feast before the great feast, which is kind of like in the Eucharist, when we take the Lord's Supper together, it's, in, it's, a, it's, it's an anticipation of this greater feast that's coming. Mm-hmm. But you remove that from the middle of human existence, and all of a sudden you're left with just waiting. Mm-hmm. And waiting with no expectation, with, no, with nothing on the other end, is empty and cold. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Well, uh, we're, we're here with Why God Why, but also welcome back, Ryan, to 41360. Yeah. So you uh, uh, loyal listeners to 41360, this is uh, not your first time uh, meeting with Ryan. So this is very exciting to talk with you again. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about, well, first of all, amazing. Thank you so much for thank coming. Much. Uh, thank you for sharing. <laughs> so we're talking about this question, why does Christmas still give us hope? And I know uh, from conversations with you in the past and things like that, that as a, as a poet, you're someone that um, you have a process and you uh, sometimes even orbit around the idea of like ritual when you're mm-hmm. coming to uh, inspiration and, and hope. So I want to ask you, 
um, practically or, or tangibly, how do you as a writer or as a person, how do you find hope? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think, I think especially when it comes to writing, when it comes to poetry, um, there is a sense and this actually has its origins in the Greek poetic tradition, that there was these nine muses. And so it was this concept of emanation where, where the tr in the transcendent realm, the realm of the muses, inspiration would flow and then the poet would receive. And so in that sense in which you're kind of living this mundane existence and all of a sudden you, ha you have this connection with something outside of yourself that gives life meaning and value. And so in the Christ Christian tradition, that's picked up in that God, you know, G Gerald Manley Hopkins talks about, you know, creation is charged with the grandeur of God. And so there is a sense in which that as a poet, what, what I get to do is look at the mundane and the ordinary. I get to look at the the violence and the brokenness of the world. I get to look at the, the moments of happiness and meaning and, and intuit from that something greater out there. And so that is a sense of hope because what it means is that this material world with all its brokenness, with all its injustice, with all its pain and suffering, with all its beauty and, and, and hope and, and, and all its goodness, that it's actually not the end, that there's something more to the story. And so just as poetry kind of helps us say something, like, so I, like something when the poem's The Radiator, it, it's allowed, it, tells, it takes something as, as practical and as tangible as a, a device that gives us heat and is able to turn it into something greater than itself. And so it trains us then to see the, the seemingly mundane of the world and draw us from that to something greater than itself. And if there's something beyond this world, if there's something that's giving this world meaning and action and something that's moving this world, then that's something I might be able to put my hope in because what it means is that this material world isn't the end. Amen. Are we, are we living in a world that lacks poetry? Because, and let me, let me ask it this way and just give you some context. We, we live in a world that, that wants truth and my mm. truth. And the, it seems that whether it's a theological, whether it's a political, whether it's a societal debate, when the poets are not welcomed into the room, we actually lose we lose something, mm. we lose the, the conversation, we lose even just, you took a radiator that's 90 degrees and wrote a whole poem about it. So I don't know, do you feel like the poets aren't invited and should be invited? Yeah, I think we live in a, we live in a pragmatic culture. So we want what works, mm. which is why actually, it's funnily enough, you actually, uh, I forgot who did this poll, but it is that, Americans read more nonfiction than ever before. And why is that? It's because, well, I want, in the, in the non, a lot of nonfiction writing, you know, with, with categories of self-help or things like that, mm -hmm. there's a sense that we're very pragmatic. We want what works. We want, we want to see immediate results. And the issue with poetry is poetry doesn't give you immediate results. It doesn't give you 10 steps on how to live better. It doesn't show you how to manage your money. Um, it doesn't even distinctly and, and neatly answer all life's questions. And so I remember talking to a, a, a pastor friend of mine and you know, we were talking about the books we were reading and it was just, it was, he, I love him a lot, but it is striking to like how much of it was either practical leadership books or like practical theology books. And like at some point we, that reaches its limit that we need, 
we need capacity for mystery and capacity for unknowing. You know, there's this great English mystical text called The Cloud of Unknowing. And it's describing encounter with God as entering into this cloud of complete unknowing. And so that is life. So, so whether it's the encounter with, with the living God or it's entering into the vast complexities of our political reality or dealing with the vast um, injustices and disparities in, in our country that seemingly have, that have you know, inform the story of this country that disenfranchises, whether it's black and brown lives or, or people of lower econ economic statuses, that to enter into those realities requires a, a sense of embracing mystery, embracing the reality that this is beyond my control and my 10 steps and my five solutions I've written down might not solve it. Mm. And so I have to be ready to deal with more questions than maybe answers. And so this, you know, being in ministry and being, being a pastor as well, when you talk to people, it's almost like when people want to evangelize people or talk to people, they, they want to give them answers. And what people want is people to dwell with them in their questions. And so when you invite poets to the room, you invite people who are ready to meditate on questions and ask better questions than to find overly sim sometimes overly simplistic answers. Mm -hmm. Great. I have two. I have two more questions Hit for me. you. They're I'm ready. They're they're shorter. Okay, so, dope. my next question is: What's your favorite Christmas movie? Oh, this is a good one. Um, I think this is a good one. I'll, I'll say Miracle on 34th Street. Okay. Um, it's yeah, it's New York number one, but also it's this great movie in which nothing is is as what it seems, and so you're kind of left in the mystery of like, is this man Santa Claus? Is he not? Or does it even matter? Yeah. Um, and does the feeling that he invokes in this young girl, who's the, one of the main characters, is 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 that what makes it real? Does he actually have to really be Santa Claus? So it's a great movie. Love it. Which uh, which version? The one from the 90s or the older one? I mean, come on. Remakes are, are dead to me. You know, like uh, <laughs> Hollywood needs to start making, Tweet you know. That. Remakes yeah. are dead to me. Yeah, you know, you can at yeah. me. Um, awesome. No, but for real, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm over the remake. You know, let's come up with some new stuff. And the original one's incredible. I got my tickets for you know Spider Man Seven or whichever one is coming out soon, so I'm ready for that. But um, but because uh, we need another superhero movie, we don't have enough. We don't have enough. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I thought you were gonna go on Cody's track and go with Home Alone Three, so I'm surprised. But um, <laughs> the direct to DVD version. Yes, yes. Uh, my other question for you, I have a little thing with me here. My my last question for you is, would you sign my book? <laughs> I will sign it. No, it's funny. Like, I have, like, a really nice pen for stuff like this, and you should have told me, but... I, I didn't think of it. No, it's fine. But, yeah, so, guys, wherever books are sold, if you're looking for a cheap Christmas gift, you know, I am not above a shameless plug, so... Neither are we. <laughs> so, uh, Ryan, uh, you know, why don't, why don't we kind of close with this question, because... Yeah. So you've just described, I mean, one of the things that I've loved about listening to you tonight has been to take these complex theological th themes and to take these ordinary things like a radiator and somehow mold them together. Not all of us are poets. <laughs> um, how can we become more reflective and more aware of the extraordinary and the ordinary in our lives, especially in this season where we're looking for hope? Yeah, I think the it sounds like maybe a cliche answer, but I think it, it has to do with slowing down. Um, 
you know, in the in the monastic tradition of Christian throughout Christian history, there's always been this tension between the between the the contemplative life and the active life. And so you'd have monasteries wholly dedicated to to the contemplative life. And so you, you have like the Carthusians and, and, and groups like that. And then you have like, you know, um, monastic tradition completely de dedicated to the active life. And that's where you get like, you know, the friars, whether it's the Dominicans or the Franciscans and things like that. And there's always been this tension, like, should we spend all our time resting and, and being slow and contemplating the divine? Or should we, you know, always be on mission, always be ready, always be ready to go, preach the gospel, go out into all the world, preach the good news? And I think what, what ended up happening is people began to realize, no, to do the active part of life, I must first embrace the contemplative aspect. I must slow down and get silent. And there's this psalm in which David says, be still and know that I am God. And um, if you look at the original Hebrew there, the, 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 the verb for be still is in, the, is in the verbal form of command. So he's commanding his soul, you know, be still my soul, be still, oh my soul. Um, and he has this other line which says, you know, be still my soul and wait on the Lord. There's a sense in which he's commanding himself. He has to force himself to stop and be still and there find God. And so I think it's, I think to do that, to be able to perceive this, these kind of glimmers of hope and creation in our fellow man and in the other, we have to learn how to be still, slow down, um, and wait. And that is actually what the Advent season is all about. It's, about. it's about waiting before, it's the waiting before the great arrival. But as we slow down and wait, we learn to see glimmers of the arrival before it actually happens. Mm. Where can people get a hold of you and uh, if they want to follow you? <laughs> yeah, um, I have an Instagram. It's ryan.diaz, D-I-A-Z. And I have a website called avagueidea.com. And I do a, you know, I write, write a lot of essays and stuff on, on art and theology. So all that's there. And I have this book for those wandering along the way, wherever books are sold, you can get it. You know, because this is a live recording, we might keep this, we might not. But why don't you just say a prayer before we transition? Absolutely. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you, God, for you, that you did not abandon us to the annals of time, but you drew near to us in your Son and continue to dwell with us in your Spirit. This Christmas season, this Advent season, God, would we learn to see you in the mundane, in the ordinary, and would we know that we are not waiting without purpose, that our waiting is not an invitation to passivity, God, but an invitation to actually participate in the renewal of creation that you began with your death and resurrection and ascension. Do this this Christmas for us, God, that we might orient ourselves on you and you alone. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Thank you, Ryan. We are going to be inviting Victoria Moore and her jazz band uh, to lead us in a few songs. So Victoria, take it away. Give her a hand. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Victoria. Thank you so much for having us tonight. We are so grateful to be here. We are a small jazz combo, and we play everything from Amy Winehouse to Bossa Nova. Um, we love playing all different types of music. And today, we're going to be playing a variety of Christmas tunes um, in the jazz style. So some of these tunes, they're originally written in the jazz style, and then other ones, um, they've been jazzified, so we are really excited to share those with you. Um, we're going to start off with a classic Christmas tune, My Favorite Things, 
which today I actually discovered why it's actually a Christmas song. I always wondered, why is this considered a Christmas song? It doesn't really have too many Christmas themes in it. I guess it might, if you think about it in a certain way. But um, it's actually considered a Christmas song because in 1961, Julie Andrews sang it on the Christmas holiday show. And so if you didn't know that, that's why it's considered a Christmas song. So um, without further ado, here's my favorite things. One, two, three, oh, one, two, three. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with string. These are a few of my favorite things. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their way. These are a few of my favorite things. Girls in white dresses and blue satin sashes Snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes Silver white winters that melt into spring These are a few of my favorite Thank you. 
That's when I know I'm turning into Mr. Schweikert, the English language arts teacher. This is what I call my students. I call them friends. And they're like, why do you call us friends? I'm like, what, what do you want me to call you? Like students, people? Uh, I can't call them guys. Like, I, I don't know what to call them. So I just, I just say friends. Anyway, I'm in English language arts teacher mode right now because I'm going to read a short story that I wrote. Um, some of you are familiar with this uh, genre, the short story. There are poems, which we've heard some, and then there are novels, and a shorter novel is called a novella, and uh, what I am reading is bigger than a poem, shorter than, no than a novella. It is a short story, and uh, I hope that you like it. It was inspired by a really intense uh, blizzard in Buffalo, New York, where I'm from, uh, that hit, I think, in 2014, and uh, so I'm just going to start reading it, all right? It's called, it's called With. <clears throat> when they left the ski resort, the roads were snowy, but you could still see faint gray lines of pavement where car tires traveled. Now, that pavement was buried. All traces of human civilization, stop signs, country cabins, boot prints, slept under an increasingly thick quilt of lake-effect snow. A furious northeast wind whipped across Lake Erie, scooping up bucket loads of chilly water and dropping them in diagonal daggers from the dark December sky. The slopes closed at 4 p.m. because it was Christmas Eve, but they decided to stay late and ski the backcountry. They cruised virgin trails laden with powder so fresh it felt more like gliding through puffs of heaven than skiing. It was the most fun they'd had together in a long time. By the time they skidded into the parking lot, it was nearly dark, and theirs was the only car left. They strapped their skis atop the roof of the car and hopped inside. Luke, man, I love you. Luke inherited his old silver Toyota Camry from his grandmother. It was 22 years old when she gave it to him, with only 44,000 miles on it. In the four years since he drove it, they'd put nearly 100,000 miles on it. Despite the rock-solid confidence that only 19-year-olds can muster, the car wasn't capable of slogging through what lay ahead. The road home wound through steep hills blasted by a blinding white blizzard. Yo, where's the road? Dude, this is intense. Even for me. They felt their tires spin and slide beneath them. Luke was quite proud about how well he could drive in the snow. He often bragged about not even needing winter tires and taunted from afar those folks in places like Georgia that shut down the entire state after a light dusting. Luke, pull over if you need to. All right, just for a few minutes until the wind dies down. He clicked his four-way flashers on and pulled over. It's hard to know where the shoulder ends and the woods begin. They came to a halt with the passenger side tires buried under the thick edge of a growing snowdrift. Let me text mom so she doesn't worry. He bit down on his mitten and pulled out fingers to type the message. Snowing bad, almost to the 219, 
pulled over for a bit, be home soon. He watched the message stall when he tried to send it and realized he had no cell service. Perfect. After a few minutes, the the Christmas album Luke played from his phone froze up. The lack of service had caught up to it as they sat in the dead zone. Without Josh Garrels crooning about the light that came down, he was left only with the ticking sound of the safety flashers. The ticking pecked away at his patience in a way that reminded him of that Chinese water torture thing he'd recently read about on the internet. Tick, 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 tick. That ticking is driving me crazy. He jammed the four-way flasher button off and sat in the silence of the night. Luke sat quietly, even patiently. Other than the Toyota's idle and a warm breeze from the car's vent, all was quiet. Then they heard another engine, a much bigger engine, humming with increasing volume from behind them. Bright blue-white lights rounded the corner and reflected in a little part of the side mirror that wasn't painted with snow. Thank God, finally, got a plow on this old road. These old roads are always the last to get plowed. Luke was putting his seatbelt back on when the orange monster roared by. It launched an avalanche of densely packed snow over the tiny Camry. This moron didn't see me or what? Maybe you should have left your flashers on. Now's really not the time. Let's get out and start digging. I've got a little snow brush in the truck. When Luke tried to push the door open, it didn't budge. When he slammed his shoulder into it a few times, it didn't budge. When he laid parallel in the front seat and tried to donkey kick the door open, it didn't budge. This can't be happening. And I don't even have cell service, and we're freaking trapped in here. What do we do? Silence. Luke realized that he'd never put his gloves back on after trying to send that text to his mom. He tucked his chilly fingers away, clawing for any scrap of security he had inside his little car. His breath became quick and shallow as he looked around, taking stock. The gas gauge on the dashboard was old and analog and had not worked for the last few months. The orange gauge was permanently stuck on E. His father insisted that he get it fixed, but he hadn't gotten around to it. He'd filled up with gas just a couple of days ago, but didn't have a great guess at how much was left. No gas meant no heat, and no heat meant no hope. His breath became quicker and more shallow. He slammed his hands down on the steering wheel. I can't believe this is seriously happening. Merry Christmas to me, I guess. Luke, man, breathe. Luke slowed his breathing down, ran his mittens over his long black hair, and got to work. Okay, so there are at least a few water bottles left in the trunk. They're frozen, but I might be able to thaw them if they sit near this heater vent for a bit. He pulled the cloth loop in the back seat to fold it down for access to the trunk. There was actually seven bottles left, and they were only half frozen. He put them in the front seat next to him and pointed the vent straight at the precious semi-liquid. Between the donkey kicks against the car door and the panting panic from moments ago, he was already quite thirsty, but he knew he needed to conserve. I have a ton of gum in my glove box. It does feel cruel that it's arctic blast. He'd wondered why it couldn't have been some kind of cinnamon fire. It's not exactly a Christmas ham, but at least there's a ton of sugar in that junk. Luke began to wonder how long he could survive in his car. He thought he was being a bit dramatic, that the storm would let up sooner than later. 
Nevertheless, he felt he needed to mentally prepare. He committed to not drinking more water than was absolutely necessary. He decided he would fast, only chewing gum if he felt faint. He would sit quite still to avoid burning calories. Then he started to feel silly again. I'm not on a survivor show or something. I'm just stuck in a little snowstorm. I'm from Buffalo, for crying out loud. After beating back a vague fear about carbon monoxide poisoning, he rested his hope on the invincibility of youth. He closed his eyes and slept under the warm breath of the cozy Camry. Silence. The cold woke him. He could see his breath in the car. Little clouds of vapor escaped from his mouth and told him something was wrong. The final flames of fuel had burnt up while he slept. Without the Camry's idol, the silence was more pure than it had been before. He lifted the latch and slammed his shoulder against the door. Somehow, it felt even more immovable than before. While the gas in the car had been emptied, the snow from the heavens had not. Between the brutal blizzard and the ice that had sealed the car doors shut, they were secure inside the cold casket, a would-be tomb that grew in thickness with each passing hour. Luke grabbed a water bottle to see if it had thawed. He had no idea how long he'd slept. If the heat had been off for some time, the water might be fully frozen. He could hear some crystal rattle inside when he shook the bottle, but more than half was liquid. Thank God. He squished and shook all the bottles, figuring the movement would prevent ice from taking over. Then he remembered physics class and how energy always comes from somewhere. If the gasoline in the Camry was not keeping the water liquid, then it was his own body doing it burning precious calories. Energy isn't supernatural. It doesn't just appear out of thin air. Someone has to pay for it, he thought. As he shook and fought the ice, he remembered that infomercial he used to see as a kid for the shake weight. He remembered how ridiculous he found it, even as a kid. He chuckled out loud when he remembered a few Christmases ago, his dad had gifted one to his mom. She was personally offended. But Luke found it hilarious. He thought about his parents and what they must be thinking right now. He wondered what time it was. Maybe it was only 4 a.m. Maybe it could be 4 p.m. There was too much snow to tell what kind of daylight shone beyond. This made him think of those deep sea creatures that create their own light because the sunshine can't penetrate the dark depths where they dwell. Whatever the time was, he knew it was Christmas and his parents were more than worried about him. He tried to text his mother again. Nothing. He decided to open up his first bottle of water. It must have been barely warm enough to be liquid because it was extremely cold. He was thirsty though, so he drank. He felt a little war between competing temperatures as the freezing water sat in his warm stomach. At first, it wasn't clear who would win. It took several minutes for the piercing cold feeling in his gut to wane. After his stomach recovered, he realized how numb his limbs were, especially his feet. He tried curling his toes inside his boots, but could not tell if they were moving or not. When he grabbed some gum from the glove box, he also saw the pack of hand and foot warmers he took from his Christmas stocking before skiing. He felt warm before he even opened them up. The sheer sight was like diving into a furnace of hope. Thank you, Mama. He tore open the foot warmers first. He forced his numb fingers to grip the tiny tab and peel back the paper to reveal the adhesive. Then he stuck one on each sock, right on top of the foot near the lifeless toes. He put a hand warmer in each of his mittens. As the warmth started to console his bones, 
and seep deep into his chilly soul. He wondered what kind of glorious powder existed in these pouches. He'd never cared before, but now he wondered how this technology was even possible. He thought about history and how man's struggle for survival slowly morphed into the complacency that comfort brings. Adrift in these thoughts, he found sleep again. The sharp silence and bitter cold woke him sometime later. His hands and feet were quite numb again. When his eyes opened, they darted straight for the water bottles. He grabbed them and shook them violently. They were more solid this time, maybe only 30% liquid. His dry throat cried out for water, but it was nothing compared to the aching hunger. His stomach felt like a hollow cave on the verge of collapse. He popped two cubes of arctic blast, chewed furiously, and slammed his body against the doors. Silence. He sipped the icy water, and the cold permeated his entire body, not just his limbs. It crept into his very core and crouched, waiting. He decided he needed more than the hand warmers to keep from freezing to death. The back seat was still folded down, so he climbed back there. With his numb toes planted in the trunk, he got into push-up position and started pumping. The rushing blood did warm his body, but exhaustion made him feel like a thousand pounds. He forced himself to do more than he wanted to, but the black clouds encroaching his peripheral vision told him he needed more gum. He repeated these things for what felt like many days. He slept, shook water bottles, failed to open the doors, drank, did push-ups, chewed gum, applied the miraculous hand and feet warmers, and slept again. The half-conscious, delirious naps led to freezing water bottles. Shaking the water back to life and slamming his bruised shoulders against the doors made him thirsty. Drinking the cold water made his insides chilly. Push-ups warmed him up a bit, but were exhausting. The sugary gum kept him conscious, but only long enough for him to lament about how cold and cruel this whole situation was. Mom's hand and feet warmers kept him from frostbite that continually knocked on the door, but they were few. Luke ran out of water first. Then he ran out of recycled water. Then the gum was gone. Worse than the hunger and the thirst, worse even than the perpetual cold, was the inability to keep track of time. It felt like his naps were an hour or two, but he didn't know. He napped at least a dozen times. He knew Christmas was long gone. He wondered why nobody had rescued him by now. Is the car visible? It can't still be snowing, can it? Will I actually die in here? These questions weighed on his chest until his breathing became rapid. He squeezed the door handle with all his might. Rage surged through his strained muscle fibers and a primal scream erupted from the deepest part of his gut so that his ears rang. Outside, the snow continued to fall. The last foot warmers were on his feet and losing life. They were past their peak, but still lukewarm. I'd rather have cold feet than a cold heart. He stuck them to his bare chest and redressed as quickly as he could. His purple fingers struggled to zip up his coat. He shivered and shot cold clouds into the cabin of the car. His hunger brought him to the brink of fainting. He nibbled bits of skin off his bloody, chapped lips. He mumbled wordless groans that bounced off the windshield back into his purple ears. Luke, remember that Reese's cup in the chest pocket of your coat. How could I be so stupid? Hallelujah! Mom's stocking stuffer comes through again. Luke didn't even mind that it was frozen. He usually stuck them in the freezer for a few minutes when he was home anyway. 
He tore open the orange wrapper with his teeth and forced himself to savor the peanut butter cup. Typically, he popped the entire thing in his mouth at once, but not now. Now he took small bites with his front teeth, letting the chocolate slowly melt on his tongue. He spent close to 20 sacred minutes eating that little piece of candy. He felt less faint after he'd finished it, but his stomach still ached. I wonder if it's still snowing. The words had hardly left his mouth when the center of his windshield cracked into a spiderweb pattern under the immense weight of snow. They wept. The tiny streams where Luke's tears ran hardened quickly on his face. His heart hardened too, no longer in resilience to survive, but in the solid confidence that he wasn't getting out of this car alive. For a brief moment, he settled into a dark peace that comes from accepting hopelessness, the kind of peace that utter loneliness brings just before death arrives, the kind of peace that's really the absence of peace, but that cold, dead peace couldn't survive for long, not in Luke. I'm going to die in here alone. You're not alone, and you're not going to die. Uh, I just want to go home. Not yet. Do you even care that I'm freezing to death right now? I am actually freezing to death. Do you understand the weight of this blizzard is about to crush this car like a little tin can? Do you even care? Luke laughed a monotone laugh with empty eyes and slapped his numb hand against his slim thigh. He laughed and laughed like a maniac until the silence returned. Luke, I am with you. I don't know you. I am with you. Are you? I am with you. You feel a million miles away right now. I am with you. I'm dead. I am with you. Okay. A subtle warmth that felt simultaneously like a chill. A burning shiver that felt neither hot nor cold, but like something else entirely radiated throughout his body, starting from his chest all the way to the very tips of his purple fingers and black toes. He reclined his seat and closed his eyes. As he slept, the snow finally ceased falling. The salt crystals from the plow truck, the salt that looked so very much like more snow, burned through the white coffin encasing Luke's car like hot stars shooting through the void of space. The salt came down and began to thaw the seams of the doors that had been welded shut by ice. Beyond the Camry and the snow and the silence, a merry sun broke through the gray of New Year's Day. Thank you.